I hope that you can sing this with me um, out loud if you want to. It won't hurt my feelings, amen. Um, but I'm so thankful that God uh, cared enough to love me and you, amen. <clears throat> David sang the praises of the glory of Jehovah. Paul preached that all is lost, save knowing Christ. And John said, He is precious. Testify. Oh, did I mention that I love him? Oh, how I worship and adore him when I can see no way he makes a That's all I want to say. 
Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 8. We're going to be considering verses 22 through 35 this morning. Looking at this continuation of Gideon's life. When you find your way to uh, chapter 8, verse 22, if you would stand with me, if you're able. This is in reverence of the reading of God's Word. Beginning in chapter 8, verse 22. Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also. For thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And Gideon said unto them, I would desire a request of you, that you would give me every man the earrings of his prey. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Speaking of the Midianites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a garment and did cast therein every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested for was a thousand and seven hundred shekels of gold, beside ornaments and collars and purple raiment that was on the kings of Midian, and beside the chains that were about their camels' necks. And Gideon made an ephod thereof and put it in his city, even in Ophrah. And all Israel went thither, a whoring after it, which thing became a snare unto Gideon and unto his house. Thus was Midian subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lived, uh, lifted up their heads no more. And the country was in quietness forty years in the days of Gideon. And Jerubbaal the son of Joash went and dwelt in his own house. And Gideon had threescore and ten sons of his body begotten, for he had many wives. And his concubine that was in Shechem, she also bare him a son, whose name was Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the sepulchres of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Abizarites. And it came to pass, as soon as Gideon was dead, and the children of Israel turned again, and went whoring after Balaam, and made Belbereth their God. And the children of Israel remembered not the Lord their God, who had delivered them out of the hand of their enemies on every side. Neither showed they kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, namely Gideon, according to all the goodness which he had showed unto Israel. I want to look this week at... Uh, authority, misplaced authority. And we're going to consider authority over the next several weeks from about four different perspectives. But I wonder if 
this morning if I could get you to pray this way. I wonder if you would pray and ask the Lord to reveal to you who the authority in your life is. Who is the apparent authority in your life? Who are you depending upon? I think if you pray that way, uh, this sermon, this passage will be revelatory for you. Would you pray with me now? Father, we thank you for this day and this time to come together. And Lord, we pray specifically for this time of the service. And Lord, we gather together to worship here in word, to hear the word of God, to read the word of God, to study the word of God, to be impacted, convicted, converted, challenged by the word of God. Lord, I pray as we continue this morning, Lord, that you would give us clarity on authority. Upon whom are we depending? In whom are we trusting? Where is the authority in our lives? Father, I pray that that revelation would be uh, meaningful this morning and that we would walk differently when we leave because of it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We have spent the last several weeks considering obedience. We have looked at uh, incomplete obedience. We looked at reluctant obedience. We looked at insecure obedience. And we considered the outcomes of those various events of obedience or delayed obedience. Those, that thought, that theme, that concept is redundant throughout the remainder of the book of Judges. We could look in several more passages and see uh, obedience or failure of it or a slow obedience or an incomplete obedience. And I also believe that it's typical in the way that we express obedience today. I believe that we are all uh, capable at times of complete uh, rock-ribbed, to quote Adrian Rogers, obedience. I believe that we're also capable of incomplete obedience, ignoring the commands of God, reluctant obedience, obeying insecurely. I think those are expressions of obedience in our life. Well, on the same uh, train of thought, we're going to see over the next few weeks a few visions of authority. And how it takes place in our lives. We're, we're going to see a, a failed authority in Abimelech, a, a, a usurped authority. Uh, we're going to see an authority that is uh, undesirable. We're going to see an authority that someone possesses and they don't want it uh, in Samson. And so there, there's pictures of authority given to us throughout the book of Judges. And they are both real and perceived. Again, there are instances or perspectives or aspects of authority. And for us today, we need to consider them because each one is a lesson in type. How we view authority. I know that you would probably like to be finished with Gideon, but, uh, and I thought we were. I just couldn't leave him. I had to, had to close his, his life out. I've said several times already, and I want to reiterate that, we don't, we don't want to sell Gideon short. 
There, there's, Gideon is, is a microcosm of each of us. He's a picture of each of us. Someone uh, who is uh, uh, cowardly and unwilling, but yet inspired and enabled and gifted. And in the end, he's a, is a very victorious in his battle. Before we get into the sermon outline, I want you to think about what transpired since the last time we saw Gideon. And you can read this for yourself between 7-1 and 8-21. There's 46 verses there. And in those verses, you're going to see a Gideon who was completely obedient. Everything the Lord said to him after the, the fleece... He was 100% obedient to it. To the extent that he would send almost 32,000 troops home, retaining only about 300, and, and he would attack Midian with, with weapon arsenals that included clay pots and trumpets and torches. And, and Gideon would, would do that in, in complete obedience and what we recognize in that aspect of Gideon is that he valiantly seizes upon this leading opportunity, what we would call a leading opportunity. When we think about leading opportunities, and this is a, an important aspect of the sermon this morning, it, it is the opportunities that God uh, puts in front of individuals and, and then they arise through which God provides a person to lead in that moment. We see these opportunities many times in the scriptures and, and often they occur in very dramatic fashion such as uh, leading an army of 300 to overcome a much more significant foe. We would think of Noah building the ark, that's a leading opportunity to, to be the one individual who finds grace in the eyes of God who would, who would for 120 years preach righteousness and build this vessel that would be the only means of escape through the wrath of God, taking with him what would be the continuance of the, old, the known animal kingdom and mankind. That's a leading opportunity that Noah had to be able to step into by the grace of God and complete that task. But we would see uh, the, 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 the um, uh, freeing of the nation of Israel from Egypt through the event of the Exodus with an 80-year-old man who was slow of speech and, and hard-headed at that and, and how he would lead them out. And we would say Moses exemplified a person capturing a leading opportunity. We could say the same of Joshua and the conquest of Canaan or Solomon and the building of the temple. Those are dramatic, detail-oriented, leading opportunities where we look at that and we say, but for the grace of God, they could not have accomplished that feat. But not all leading opportunities, and especially those that come to you and me, are going to be so dramatic. Not all are going to be so charged with detail or so conflicted with necessity. 
you step into the New Testament around Matthew 9 and you read of how Levi, who is Matthew, was standing at the receipt of customs and when Christ walked by, he simply said, follow me, and Matthew left all and followed him. That is a leading opportunity. When he would say to uh, Peter and, and Andrew, uh, leave your father's business and follow me, and they would go without any reassurance, that is a leading Opportunity When you have four friends who would take a fifth friend and put him on a pallet and take him to the top of a rooftop and peel the roof open and lower him down into the presence of Christ so that Christ could do a healing work, those men were in a leading opportunity. They were doing something greater than themselves. We think of a, the little boy who had the lunch that would be given to Christ to feed 5,000. That was a leading opportunity without any drama, without any fanfare. You think of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, that early leader in the New Testament church who would, who would be uh, so charged as to, as to leave Jerusalem and go to Antioch and see the hand of God working and Barnabas would detour to Tarsus and grab Saul and take him with him, the Apostle Paul. That's a leading opportunity. And we, we would see those in our lives as well. They, they, they would appear mundane or, or typical it may be something as simple as the opportunity to, to lead a Sunday school class or to start a Bible study or to host a prayer time or possibly a chance to lead an, an outreach group or serve the church in some way that, that you've served the, the, yourself your whole life and now you see an opportunity in the church to do that. I, Carla would be remiss if I didn't say sing in the choir. It's a leading opportunity. It's an opportunity to, to lead. And you may not ever lead an army against a superior foe, but you can enjoy leading opportunities in your life. And Gideon was there and he seized on that leading opportunity. In all of his cowardice, in all of his insecurity, he was able to look and see God as the authority and take that leading opportunity. And because of that, uh, Gideon receives in verse 22 what is a very lucrative offer. I think it's overlooked often. I don't think we comprehend exactly what they're saying. When they say to Gideon, uh, rule thou over us, thou and thy son's son and thy son's son, let me tell you what they're offering him. They want him to be their king. They're not viewing him the way they viewed Barak. They're not viewing him the way they viewed Deborah or, or one of these other judges. They're not asking him to judge over us. They are saying to him, we want you to rule over us. It's, it's a sincere offer, by the way. Uh, we, would, we would look into Israel's past and we would say, well, you know, they asked for a king of, of Samuel and Samuel was so hurt and they, God, they've rejected me. And God said, no, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me. Uh, let's give them what they've asked for. But this happens a hundred years before that. They're asking for a king. And they're coming directly to the man. This man who only days before was hiding. 
and they, they place this offer in front of him. It is, a, it is a reoccurring picture in the scriptures, but I want you to know it's closer to home than just the scriptures. It is the reoccurring picture of we have God, but we want a man to go between us and God. The nation of Israel did the same thing to Moses. You talk to God. We, we don't want to talk to him anymore. You, you talk to him and tell us what he said. Listen, that is, that's heading in the wrong direction. Here we have this picture of they, they, they are in a locked relationship with God. They are in a theocratic government wherein God is overseeing the goodness for the nation of Israel. He is lifting up judges. He is delivering them when they call. He is defeating foes. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's given them the land. He's, he is, he's there person to person, face to face. And they look at Gideon and say, we want you to rule over us. Can I tell you that this has continued to happen down through the annals of time? It's happening today, even. Uh, we would look at, we're looking on uh, Sunday nights uh, at church Christian history and, 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 of course, quick plug for the church, focus groups. If you're not here, you're missing it. It's an opportunity to grow in grace and knowledge, opportunity to learn. Enough said. Uh, we're studying Christian history, and one of the things that we're looking at this week, if you're in that Christian history class, is the development of the overseer class. It is that development of the priesthood. Happened in that first 300 years of the church. It was, it was almost a necessity at the time because you needed, you needed some men that could congeal together and and. and state what are the doctrinal truths and protect the scriptures and get the scriptures into one place and establish orders of worship and establish houses of worship. But the problem is that priesthood, what becomes the priesthood, it, it replaced the priesthood of the believer. And suddenly we have believers now where they were in a priesthood position with God. They are now in a position where there's a mediator between them and God. And the Bible says very clearly that there's one God and one mediator between man and God. The man Christ Jesus. But because they wanted somebody to go before them, somebody to do the spiritual work, somebody to do the hard things, they, they passed it off to that priesthood. And before we get too quick to point out uh, the the non-Protestant churches, let me tell you something, it's just as bad in the Protestant churches, and I don't even consider Independent Baptist to be a Protestant church, but it is just as bad in the Independent Baptist movement. I said earlier that I would not say these names with that camera running, but I've got a little bit of courage right now, and so I'm going to go ahead and say it, and I'll pay the bill later. But when you have people like Jack Hiles, you may or may not know these names, but these men like Jack Howes and, and, and some of uh, the John R. Rices and the Curtis Hudsons down through the years, they've become almost godlike. They have a hundred, they have total authority, and people are looking to them almost as a priest position. That's a picture of this. That happened in the independent ranks. That didn't happen in the Catholic Church or the Episcopalian Church. And so we would see this idea where, where men, are, they have an opportunity to be in a relationship with God, but what they desire is somebody to go between. That's what's exemplified here. I, I want you to know we do it 
not only at a religious level, we do it at a civic level. At a civic level, level we exalt politicians and policies and polls and the ballot boxes when we should be looking to God. We, we would go to the ballot box and uh, we would get in there and if you're like me, uh, you, <laughs> you probably are not, but if you are like me, you are voting for the lesser of two evils, right? And you, you, you go in there and you think, and by the way, I'm going to say it, I said it this morning, uh, if one of them is pro-choice, I don't have a choice because I won't support that. It's against my Christian beliefs. But however, you go in that box, you choose whatever is the lesser of two evils, you vote for it, and you spend the next two or three months talking about, I hope he can, I hope he can, I hope he can. It's not him. It's God. We are, we are ruled by this idea that we're dependent upon a party or a policy can I tell you something? As, as, as poorly as you could think, possibly, of the individual who is currently president, God could get a hold of that man's life without anything else happening and turn him around, and he would go down in the annals of history as one of the greatest presidents we ever had if God so moved in his life. Do you want to know why God does not move in his life, in my opinion? It's because the church is not in a position to call on God to move in his life. Listen to what Daniel says. Daniel, speaking of government... He, talking of God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Do you hear that? He does that. God does that. Just look at, just take some time in the book of Daniel sometime and look at the three kingdoms that he would watch rise and fall and every one of them seemed to be the greatest on earth, and they would fall to the next. The psalmist says, it's not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. The Proverbs say it this way, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And lastly, the Apostle Paul would say in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. You can short service that by saying the powers that be are of God. So we have this moment in Israel's history. They are they're downtrodden. They're defeated. They are hiding from the Midianites and God picks the most unlikely individual in Gideon and he uses Gideon uh, to, to, to bring about this great deliverance and they offer Gideon the, the, the king's position and this is why I notice this laughable, laughable opinion in verse 22 because thou hast delivered us out of the hand of Midian. That's what they say. Gideon, we want you because you have delivered us out of the hand of Midian. Do you see that? 
in their, in their stated opinion, Gideon alone is responsible for the deliverance. It, it, there's a principle there that there's a fine line between obeying the apparent authority and worshiping the leader, and they've, they've completely crossed that line. They're not ascribing any glory to God, only to Gideon. And, and I want you to know something. It's good. It's righteous to see Gideon. It's righteous to recognize his accomplishment through his obedience to God. But to recognize or to see Gideon as the uh, deliverer or the conqueror or the victor is to fail to see the power behind the authority. I want you to consider for a moment the way that Gideon defeated the Midianites. In the beginning, it was a bad dream that was spread by subordinates that caused them all to turn on one another and slay one another with their own sword. Ooh, Gideon. That's not Gideon. God did that. It is, it's, it's the idea that we would exalt the man above the authority behind the man. And uh, I want you to know that as born-again believers, we have to be careful to recognize the authority and we mustn't forget that God is the power behind the authority. God is the power behind the throne. God is the power behind the crown. God is the power behind the office. God is the power behind the pulpit. God is sovereign. He's the authority. And to keep a right, a right perspective, our relationship must be with God first. Must be with him first. We have to keep a personal connection. Recognizing and respecting his authority. Then we can see the authority in our lives. We see this laughable opinion. Look at Gideon's response in verse 23. It's a legitimate observation. And, and we can appreciate this in Gideon before seeing his downfall. And Gideon would say in verse 23... I will not rule over you. Neither my son, the Lord shall rule over you. And Gideon recognizes it. He sees it. He knows it. He knows where he was at. He knows what God had to do in his life to get him to a place of, of victory. He understands that God is the one. I've heard people uh, say before that Gideon was just reluctant to rule. But, but he wasn't reluctant to rule. He recognized that God was ruling. God, the Lord, shall rule over you. True deliverance issues forth from God. He, he may use a man or a woman or a child or a doctor or a medication or a surgeon or a politician or a pastor, but if deliverance, uh, redemption, rescue, if, if all of that occurs, it is due to the goodness and the mercies of God. It's not about a person. It's about God. You know, I thought about this as I spent some time this week considering this, this, this uh, concept that, you know, God, God may send an evangelist. God may send an evangelist into your life to tell you your need of a Savior, but the evangelist is only a tool in God's hands. 
He may send a pastor. God may send a pastor into your life that leads you into a deeper relationship, a better understanding, but if that pastor, but that pastor is just a man that God is using. God may send a teacher to help you mature, to grow you, but that teacher is just a tool. God might send a disciplinarian into your life to grow you up, but that person is just a conduit through which God can work to your benefit. The Lord shall rule over you. That's what Gideon said. He's sovereign. God is in control always. Well, what happens when we wrongly ascribe Authority. Well, I want you to see this likely outcome here. There's, there's uh, two passages right here, 24 through 27, then again 29 through 31. This is what happens when you wrongly ascribe authority. Uh, I'm going to just kind of share it with you instead of reading it again. But Gideon said, no, I, I don't want the, uh, no, the Lord's going to rule over you. I'm not going to be your king, but I do want the earrings. I would like the gold if it's not too much trouble. I mean, you guys want to make me king. I don't want to be king, but let, just let me have the earrings. And uh, he takes the earrings and he makes uh, an, an ephod. And uh, ephod is like, a, it's a priestly garment. It's like a vest. So he makes this golden ephod and he sets it up there in Ophrah. As uh, I think, I think that Gideon initially did that uh, as a way to remember what God had done. I think it was a memorial. I don't think he had ill intentions with it, but that's what he did. Well, it says very clearly in the scriptures that all of Israel went whoring after it and started worshiping that ephod, and that thing became a snare unto Gideon. Well, the second thing he did was he married many wives. We're not told how many, but he had 70 sons by his wives, and, you know, that's not enough. I mean, everybody needs one more. So he went down to Shechem and got him a concubine and had one more. That one's going to be a problem in the next few chapters. This is a picture, by the way, of excess. What, what are we talking about happens when we trust man rather than trusting God? Well, what happens is we're exposing that man to a continual temptation, and he's likely going to fall under the burden of that temptation. We're placing on that man responsibilities that he cannot fulfill and burdens that he cannot bear and expectations under which he cannot succeed. And so we have cast all of this authority onto that man. And he's not capable of carrying it because it wasn't his authority it's been misplaced. It was God's authority. And so what we understand is it doesn't mean that we, we never recognize the authority of men. I, uh, it's a pet peeve. You ought to know who the apparent authority is and pay respect unto them. I don't care if you're at a, at a t-ball game or at the White House. Whoever's in charge is in charge. And if it's not you, it's not you. You ought to respect the apparent authority. It doesn't mean that we never recognize the authority of men or of leaders. We understand they are there at every single level. They are there by the sovereign will of God. So when I respect that leadership, when I, when I submit to that leadership, 
I'm not submitting to them. I'm submitting to God who placed them there. And when I'm dependent upon their leadership, I'm not dependent upon them. I'm dependent on God that put them there. Paul would, Paul would say this way in 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. That is a biblical perspective of leadership. Is that man in charge? Yes, he is. Am I dependent on him? I am not. I'm dependent on the God that put him there. I am trusting in the God that put him there. I'm not misplacing authority in him. I'm going to submit to him because I'm submitting to the God that put him there. This is, uh, you, you all familiar with Watchman Nee? And, uh, Watchman Nee was a, a Chinese Christian, uh, back before the Communist Party took over, I would say probably in the 30s, thereabouts, and he would stand strong in his Christian faith. He was an evangelist, preacher, and he would stand strong against the Communist Party, and he was, he was tormented, persecuted, tortured, imprisoned, and, uh, and, but he stood strong for God. This is what he said. He said, we do not obey man, but God's authority in that man. That's where we stand. What does Gideon end up with all of this misplaced authority? Well, he's, he's tempted by possessions. Piles up all that gold. I really believe that there's a pretty good picture there of clinging to past victories rather than living in the present victory that God offers. And, and I almost... We almost preached that this week. I think there's a picture there. But in the end, it's all about the gold. He, not only is he tempted by possessions, he's responsible for a twisted priesthood, an, an idolatrous priesthood that people began coming there rather than going to Shiloh to worship. He, he is tainted by many wives and all of the problems that come with that because at some point in time, somebody said to him, that he delivered. I wonder this morning what you would say to that. How would you answer that question? And in answering with your actions, support or betray your words, who is the authority in your life? And upon whom are you depending? Would you stand with me today? Your head's bowed and your eyes closed. I see a couple of responses that would be right here. And, and I want you to be led of the Lord. But, you know, maybe the Lord is saying to you, look, I've put leading opportunities in your path and you've not accepted them. I have a responsibility for you. I want to help you accomplish it. Maybe you would come down here today and you would say, Lord, whatever opportunities come up in front of me, I will embrace them in the power and provision of God. Be very helpful to the church. Maybe today you've put too much authority in the hands of man. 
And maybe today God wants you to come back down here and recognize that he's sovereign, that he's in charge, he's in control. He's put these leaders in place. And you could get your prayer life back in line with him, praying that God would do a work. I don't know your need. I don't know your response. But I do wish you'd come this morning. Father, I pray you'd honor this time of invitation. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. Oh, tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee every hour. I need this way just for a moment thank you so much for your attention today and for your attendance and I ask every time I preach not that you'd go out of here convinced but that you'd go out of here and meditate think on what you've heard this morning compare it with the Holy Spirit of God compare it with the Word of God and see if it's not true um, apart from that I'm thankful that you were here I would love to see you tonight at 6 for uh, focus groups and I want to do one other thing real quick. Uh, Dr. Neems has been working on a project for 30 years, <laughs> but diligently for the last year or so. And he has uh, published two books. Uh, one is a, uh, both of them are Greek studies. One of them is in the book of Jude, and the other is in the book of Colossians. And uh, he will have those available uh, in the next few weeks. And uh, we would like to support him in that. And so over the, the, the next couple of weeks, we're going to arrange a time where he can do some book signing and, and provide those to you. Um, and I just wanted to recognize him for that accomplishment. It's, it's a, a life work. And uh, I'm sure he's got many more that he'd like to do, and I hope the Lord enables him to do that. And uh, if you get a chance to congratulate him on that accomplishment, and, uh, and be prepared to participate in uh, purchasing the books. That would be uh, genuine. So, Doc, if you don't mind, you close us in prayer, sir.